good morning, Highland Hills. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Mark. We are continuing to look at the ministry of Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit led Mark to write about it. And we are looking at how Jesus' ministry got started and how in the midst of that, Christ wanted to change the lives of those who would carry on the legacy and proclaim his good news of how he called the apostles. And I think when we examine this historical account, we will see that how he changed the lives of these apostles, he also wants to change our lives. So we are in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, and I think the scripture calls us today to abandon our fishing nets that we may serve Christ. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, wrote these words. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray as we go to the Holy Scriptures this morning. Father God, we do thank you once again for this opportunity to examine the historical account of the ministry of your Son, of Jesus, to see how he changed the lives of so many. And how he wants to change our lives as well with this simple invitation that Christ says to us, follow me. I pray by your grace that we would be able to accept that invitation and that we would be able to root our lives in that call of following Jesus. And I pray that because we've turned to the book of Mark this morning that we see a glimpse of, of what that looks like in our lives, to truly, genuinely, authentically follow Christ. Be with us as we turn to your scripture. And Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Sometimes life can be incredibly difficult, and that is an understatement to say the least. 
I recently finished a book called Hope When Life Unravels, and I wanted to read this book uh, particularly because it was written by my former pastor, Adam Dooley. And I knew the situation that his family had gone through, and he had taken the time to write a book uh, about his account, Hope When Life Unravels. What happened is Adam had just accepted a pastorate down in Mobile, Alabama, and as he was getting excited about this new ministry, some devastating news came to their family. Adam's two-year-old son, Carson, was diagnosed with leukemia. And so Adam had started this new ministry, and he had this son facing this devastating disease of leukemia. And they knew that the best treatment for Carson was at St. Jude's in Tennessee, that that was the best treatment he could get in the entire nation. So for two years, Adam flew or drove Carson once a week, sometimes more, to Tennessee, to Alabama, over and over and over again to ensure he get the best treatment possible. And that was a difficult experience, but I saw in Adam, and as I read in the book and knew him personally, how God used that experience in his life and how he clinged to the Lord in the midst of such impossible circumstances. And you'll be happy to know that the Lord answered many prayers and Carson is doing great today because of the phenomenal treatment of St. Jude's, because of the intervention of so many who stormed the throne of grace on his behalf. But you know, there is this question that I think people who go through such difficult circumstances have to ask, why? Adam, his wife Heather, and Carson, why is this happening? And I think we would be a bit audacious and arrogant to think that we know the answer to that. We don't. We don't know the answer to when difficult situations like this hit people's lives. We know that this world has been messed up, that God created this world where we could know him, and that this world is in a fallen state where there is cancer, there is disease, there are heart defects, there are problems with this world. And we are promised in Jesus Christ that those will be fixed one day, that whatever we face in this life must be deemed temporary by Jesus Christ, because Christ promises us a world where death and disease and destruction are vanquished and banished forever one day. But in the midst of someone, especially who is in ministry, I'm sure there is a question, why? Why is this happening? We should never be surprised when difficulty arises in our lives. You see, there are some who may say that Jesus is kind of a ticket to a carefree life, that if you just name it and claim it, you can banish all bad circumstances from your life. But is that really what we see in the people who cling to God and wanted nothing more to glorify his name? Is that what we think happens when people truly do follow the Lord. Because I believe what we have in this text today is an extraordinary believer who faced a difficulty in his life, and it didn't turn him from the Lord. It caused him to cling to him that much greatly more. And that person is John the Baptist. And I believe that he faced something difficult in his life and he still remained faithful to the Lord. And that's our first application today, I think, from this text. Remain faithful to God in difficult times. Let me show you what I mean. Look again in verse 14. It's just a, a quick 
interjection of what's happened to John, but I think it's so profound of what it means to follow the Lord. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. John the Baptist was a remarkable man, an extraordinary follower of God, boldly proclaiming the Lord's kingdom. And many were coming to his ministry, admitting they were sinners, believing in God who offered to forgive them, and confessing that they would give their lives to the Lord. John was famous for this ministry. In fact, one time Jesus himself said this of John in Matthew eleven eleven. In Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus gave this testimony of John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So here is this great one, great faith, great committed to the Lord, John the Baptist, and he is in prison. Once again, he's in ministry too, facing a difficult circumstance. You know, I wonder, did John think, have I done something wrong? Why has this happened to me? And if John thought that, that would not be a wrong thought. And like I said, many have concluded that in ministry, you get to avoid things like this. But that's not what we see when we turn to the biblical characters who love the Lord. They had a joy that could not be taken away. They had a joy that circumstance could not dictate. But they were never promised the removal of obstacles. Comfort, worldly success, financial stability, and the like. Some people say that's what success looks like, and that's what you can have for following God. Carefree, bills are paid, everything's fine. That's what a blessed life looks like. That's what a blessed ministry looks like, is the narrative. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that if things are good, Jesus is still more valuable, and that's where your joy should be rested. And when things get difficult, you have a foundation in Christ that circumstance cannot take away from you. Peter said it like this in 1 Peter 4.12. In 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12, the apostle Peter said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. John was willing to go to prison to be faithful to the Lord. Peter is willing to be real that sometimes life can throw things at us that are difficult. And each of them see that our joy is still found in Christ, in the Messiah. Jesus does call us. And he promises one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth where diseases are gone, death is vanquished, and Jesus is king. We will be reunited with our loved ones, we will be with Christ, and we will be protected forever. But Jesus also calls us to bear witness for him now, this day, a day when suffering may come into our lives. But we are called to remain faithful, not to give up. And when we do suffer and when we face difficulty, we can remember that John the Baptist knows what that that is like. More importantly, Jesus Christ knows what it's like to suffer in this life. He who went to the cross 
for us and bore our sin and suffered knows what it's like when we face difficulties in life. And when we face difficulties, we can turn to our high priest who can relate to us and knows what it's like to face difficulty that we may glean from his strength. That's why I think it's so important that we don't just gloss over what's happening here in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, famous, people flocking to him, and now he is in prison. But even in difficulties, his aim is to please God. And though he is in prison, the, moment, the, the, the movement of the gospel could not be stopped. Verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And if we do believe in the gospel, and if we do embrace the good news, then we will be found making this application as well from the text. If we're going to live this out and apply it, we must make this application. Abandon your fishing nets and follow Jesus. Look with me in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Andrew, Simon, Peter, James and John, four fishermen. Fishing would have been kind of a lower middle class occupation in this time period some 2,000 years ago. Fishing was, was occurring and, and there was trade as far down as Egypt. It's not a bad thing. This is a very good thing. They're providing for themselves and the family. And here comes Jesus and he looks at them and Christ says, follow me. Not follow a religion not follow a movement. Jesus looks at them and says, follow me. And Mark depicts this act as void of hesitation. Mark says, immediately, they throw down their nets, they abandon their priorities, and they follow Jesus. The word that Mark uses occurs often. We're going to see it over and over again in the book of Mark. He always says immediately, immediately, immediately. Some translations say straight away. Some translations say at once. It's the Greek word uthus. Mark has as, as his gospel he has presented to us in the Bible becomes the shortest gospel we have. It's almost like the book of Mark, if you compared it to the other gospels, is kind of in fast forward. He's going quick. And he's constantly saying, and then immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened. His transitions are quick and rapid. And Mark uses it here, I think, to describe that without hesitation, without reluctance, Andrew, Simon, James, and John are ready to follow Jesus. And even though he is capturing the emotion of what's happening here, this is not the first time that they had encountered Jesus. Look with me in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. I'll put it up here on the board. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, we know historically that this is not the first time that these disciples had encountered the Christ. In John 1, 35, it says this. The next day... John was again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? 
And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So we know historically before this account in Mark, they've already encountered Jesus. They've talked to him and they know him. And, and I think sometimes when we read the Bible over and over, we can forget how strange it is sometimes. What if you were just walking in Walmart and you turned around and two guys were following you? And, and you walked on to the next aisle and you turn around and there's those two guys. That's what's happening to Jesus. These two guys are following him. He turns around and he's like, what do you guys want? So they're intrigued by Christ. They've talked with Jesus before this account in Mark when they drop their nets and follow him. So it's not as if a stranger walked up and just said, follow me, and they're jumping into the darkness. Just a leap of faith with no context. There is faith here. There is trust in Christ, but they have encountered him already. But what Mark is communicating is that nothing is holding them back. Now Jesus calls them to follow him in a significant way. Once again, verse 17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Jesus said he's calling them to be fishers of men. And I believe Jesus offers the same invitation to all of us. That's what Jesus is calling you to do with your life. The same thing that he called them to do. Christ has commissioned us for this. The Bible says it like this in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, verse 18, it says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age." This is what Christ tells his church. This is what Jesus is saying to you. That as he called the apostles to be fishers of men, he calls you to commit your life to that same endeavor. To everyone in here, Jesus says, follow me. And he calls us to follow him that we may go proclaim the good news. And we too are holding on to fishing nets. We too are holding on to something as Christ beckons us to give our lives to him. And the question is, will we immediately cast them down? Or will we attempt to hang on to those fishing nets in our lives? Because I think sometimes as Christians, if we were honest, we can drag our fishing nets. Instead of throwing them down immediately and committing to Christ, we can drag our fishing nets some of us start following Jesus. But if we were honest, we've been hurt in our lives. Maybe there's hate and animosity towards someone. And you kind of want to hold on to it. And you're kind of dragging that. And Jesus says, throw down your net and follow me. Maybe in our lives, we, we want to follow Jesus, but we're dragging that net of living for money. 
That in the end, if we could really look at our lives, we feel that life is about accumulating wealth and stuff and, and, and pointing toward us, and that's what we're trying to do. And Jesus is saying, throw that down and follow him. Some of us know good and well that Jesus has convicted us to witness to a particular person, and we're delaying and delaying, and we're dragging the net of negligence when we know that God wants us to share the good news with someone else. Maybe your net isn't even a sin. There's nothing wrong with what these apostles are doing. Fishing, making a living, working, that's great. What they were holding on to when they were called to let go of was not a bad thing. Maybe you know that God is calling you to place your priorities in life in a place different than you have them right now. And your priorities right now aren't bad, but Christ is calling you toward a different plan. Will you throw down your net or will you continue to drag it? We must throw down anything that's keeping us from following Jesus. Why? Because there's nothing, nothing that can give us joy aside from making Christ the chief priority of our lives. Nothing will fill our hearts like the Messiah. Nothing will give us purpose like this calling of following the Son of God. So our net is anything that keeps us from giving everything to Jesus. As the disciples immediately threw down their priorities and picked up the agenda of Jesus, we must do the same. And if we are going to do that, if you cast down your net and you commit your life to the Lord, I believe the scripture also calls you to this application today as well. Follow Jesus to minister to a world of broken people. You see, Jesus doesn't just say, follow me. He shows you exactly where he's going. And he's going to engage in a world of broken people. Look with me once again in Mark 1, verse 21. Verse 21 says this. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Well, here are these disciples following Jesus, and where does Jesus take them? To a broken person who needs rescued from the kingdom of Satan. You see, the synagogue was a place of Jewish worship. So he takes them there to worship the Lord. But there's this one who can't worship because he has been so overtaken by the kingdom of the devil. So Jesus takes these, these people who he says, follow me. And the question is, where are they going? They immediately go to help someone who can truly worship the Lord if he was set free. And the people say something about this. They say in verse 27, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, 
a new teaching and with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They notice something about Jesus. Out of all the people that they have encountered, speaking of the Lord, reflecting on his scriptures, there is an authority that Jesus brings that they feel is different than anything they've ever encountered. There is an authority that Christ has that eclipses any teaching that they've ever heard. So what does this mean that Jesus has this authority? One of my favorite authors of all time is C.S. Lewis. He was a brilliant Christian thinker, and he wrote a variety of books, a variety of genres. He wrote books to children. Maybe you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the famed Chronicles of Narnia. But he also wrote books on theology, such as Mere Christianity. A book he also wrote was known as A Grief Observed, where he in a very open way, reflected on the emotional catastrophe of losing his wife to cancer, and her name was Joy. So whether he was writing for children or reflecting on theology or being very real about the struggles in his own life, it seemed as if C.S. Lewis had the ability to reach a variety of audiences, from the youngest to the oldest, to engage them with his writings and to speak to them. His works have been studied for decades. However, despite all the examinations of the works of C.S. Lewis, in the early 21st century, it seemed to be discovered that every scholar and every fan and every reader of Lewis had missed something. You see, Lewis was a professor of medieval literature. And in medieval cosmology and astronomy, there was a focus on studying Jupiter and Saturn and Venus and Mars and, and other planets, not only studying them as they appeared in the skies, but the, the, the myths that had formed around them in various societies. And now some scholars are claiming that the planetary bodies that were studied in the medieval era were actually used as themes in the Chronicles of Narnia. And nobody knew it. Nobody realized that these had become themes that the author, there was almost a Narnia code that he was basing each book off of to see if someone could figure it out. And in 2007, a scholar wrote a dissertation on this. His name was Dr. Michael Ward. And he said, for instance, if, if you look at the Narnia series, that the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe would align with Jupiter, who, based on mythology, was connected with kingship, that the book Prince Caspian was connected with Mars, who in mythology was connected to war, and there's a war that occurs in it. So basically he says that the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this famous series for kids, actually has a connection to medieval cosmology, and it formed a theme for each book he wrote in that. Some scholars claim that this is the case. Some say, no, nah, he's, he's reading too much in it. But many are convinced that this scholar in 2007 stumbled upon something that C.S. Lewis had hidden in his books and never talked about, but was right there if you would just look. So now here's the question. Is the Narnia Code true? Did this scholar discover something? That though millions have read these books over and over, did this scholar discover something that everyone had missed 
and that C.S. Lewis may have secretly, joyfully had as a part of each of his books. Well, here's the thing. We don't know. That's a debate. And you can have evidence for the debate, and you can sit and ponder about it. And it really is kind of neat, especially if you're a C.S. Lewis fan. But what about this? What if a scholar discovered this before C.S. Lewis died? What if someone said, wait a second, Lewis, I have a question for you. It seems as if you're using medieval cosmology as a theme in each Narnia book as they progress. Is that true? And what if C.S. Lewis looked at that person and said, I'm glad you figured that out and smiled? That would not be an opinion. That would be an affirmation because that would be from the mouth of the author Who has more authority on the world of Narnia and the books of Narnia as much as the author himself? But the author's gone. And so all we have left is a scholarly debate. Let's bring this back to our text. Why does Jesus, wherever he goes, why do people say he just has this authority like we've never seen? He has an authority that eclipses all the teaching we've encountered. I think it's because of this. Jesus is the author of the scriptures of God. Because Jesus is God. We do have the author. The Bible says this in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Peter said it like this in 2 Peter one, Second Peter 1.20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus has authority concerning the, teach, the teachings of the Lord like no one else had ever seen because he is God. And men wrote God's word that the Holy Spirit guided them. God guided them. And this is why we're radically committed to studying it. That's why I hope today you didn't show up to see my opinion. I hope that what you showed up today was for us to reflect on the scriptures of God. For this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe Jesus is God, and if you will follow Jesus who has authority like no one else, then you must follow him to the broken people of this world. That's where he took the disciples. And that's where he wants to take us. Verse 23 again. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. And come out of him. Fishers of men. That's what Jesus said they would be, right? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What types of men? What types of people? Well, in this case, demon-possessed. What would you do if you encountered someone so full of sin, difficult to be around, Annoying, maybe even frightful. 
Many people probably rejected this demon-possessed man, but Jesus loves him, and he wants to heal him. See, we can't just follow Jesus to minister to people that are pleasant to be around, people who are always just like us. No, when Jesus said, follow me, the, one of the first places he takes them to is to those who are broken, to a person who is downtrodden, those who've been maybe hurt and jaded by others. When others have turned away, Jesus stood up for them. If we're going to follow Christ, it's clear where he's going. It's to a world of broken people, and this is our calling. To go into this world and to point them to the only one that can defeat the darkness that is in their life. To point them to the only one that can rescue this world from Satan, and that is Jesus. And here's the thing. We really can't do this. We don't have the power to do this. This calling that Jesus placed on these four that the world would have just said, they're just average fishermen who are these guys. We don't have the power to take on what Christ has called us to do. But here's the beauty of it. We don't have to rely on our own power. We get to rely on the power of another. Once again, verse 27, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We don't have to rely on our strengths and talents. We get to rely on the power of Jesus. All we have to do is follow him. It is his strength. It is his power that will equip us to reach a broken world. And that is what we are invited to do. We are invited to follow Jesus, to encounter the broken people of this world, and by his strength and by his power to impact them with the good news. All we have to do is throw down our fishing nets and follow the Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the invitation to go to a broken world with your good news. And I pray we do that very thing. God, I pray that when we face the difficulties that this world can throw to us, that we would stand on the rock of your kingdom and your good news. And I pray that when we see people hurting in this world, that we would long to go and love them, not in our ability, but in yours. Jesus, you called these disciples to follow you, but you call us to do the same thing, to commit our lives, to abandon our priorities, to take up your agenda. And I pray that we see that when we do so, we encounter what our hearts crave, joy, joy that you called us to experience, joy in knowing that we're living for your kingdom. And may we do this only in your strength. In Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Let us stand. We will close singing the praises of the Lord. And if you need to come at this time as we sing, you come.